Hey everyone, if you've already made a donation to the show, thank you. The money is really, really helping. But if you've been thinking about donating and not quite gotten around to it yet, we could still really use your help. You can donate with your credit card in any amount at paypal.me slash murder etc. That's paypal.me slash murder etc. Or simply use Venmo and send your donation to murder etc. Now, here's episode 21, Greenville's Summer Suns. In the summer of 1975, on a little island off the South Carolina coast, an alligator, either lost or in need of a change of scenery from its freshwater marsh, decided to go to the beach. Carefree, undeterred by the vacationers, unafraid of the choppy surf, the gator dug its claws through the Sullivan's Island sand, likely unaware, a whole bunch of people were clamoring for its capture. Who do you call when you've got a gator on the loose on the beach? On Sullivan's Island, they called the dog catcher, who managed to wrangle the gator back where he belonged. If there had been a South Carolina dog catcher convention in 1975, that guy's story wouldn't have come close to the most interesting or the most dangerous. The winner of that contest would have come from Greenville County. And today, the notorious bank robber Fast Eddie Williamson says he was out riding motorcycles with two of his friends in law enforcement. I was riding motorcycles with Al Ashmore and Pridmore. And Pridmore wanted to buy my motorcycles. It was a nice sports girl. I mean, really, really nice. Eddie says he'd been out riding with his cop buddies on a Harley he'd gotten from his bank robbing buddy, Treetop. And they stopped at Rex Carter's office. He was Eddie's attorney and was going to help finalize the sale. That is when the attorney's secretary got off the phone. Which is Eddie. <laughs> uh, Phyllis calls that the police is surrounding your place, screaming for you to come out on the lawn. Good thing Eddie was at his attorney's office, because things were going straight to hell over at his place. Greenville County Sheriff Cash Williams was standing just outside Eddie's fence, yelling for Eddie to come out, because the sheriff sure as hell was not going in. I had a fixed fence around it, and I had attacked Dobermans in that. You heard right. Attacked Dobermans. Listen, I stole some Greenville County police uniforms, and I took them to Atlanta down there to Bad Dog Incorporated and had my dog trained to attack police uniforms. So what could Cash Williams be so fired up about that he was ready to face down two attack dogs? Them dogs, they would jump up and grab the fence, and they were hanging on the fence. Attack dogs? hanging by their teeth from the fence. What did Cash Williams want? He wanted Eddie. I want to go in and see Eddie Williams in that house. Right then, Cash Williams could have used his animal control officer, a woman named Jackie Gardo. But the thing was, the sheriff had come looking for Eddie because of what happened to Jackie Gardo that day. A man was driving down the road when he said he saw a woman unconscious and bleeding beside her county car. That woman was Jackie Gardo, who told her boss she'd been attacked by three well-dressed men, men who wanted to know what she knew about the sheriff's investigation into the contract killing of Raymond Bugs Hassey. Gardo said the men cut her, knocked her unconscious, and then drove off in a white over red Cadillac. But Cash William, he had got it because it was a red and white Cadillac involved. It was me. 
You got what I'm saying? If you didn't get what he was saying, Gardo said her attackers had been in a white over red caddy, and Eddie Williamson drove a white over red caddy, one he says he bought from another Jackie. I had bought that car from Jackie Dell. What Cash didn't know, according to Eddie, was that he had the world's best alibi. He was, at that very moment, standing in his attorney's office with two cops. Rex said, well, where were you when this happened? Ashmore and Pridmore spelled it. He was riding motorcycles with us. We're trying to buy his motorcycle. It couldn't have been him because he was with us. Eddie's attorney headed out to the house. With the attack dogs finally in the pen, Eddie says the sheriff insisted on searching the trailer anyway. Cash Williams went in by himself to look for Eddie, a guy who insisted then and insists now. Not only was he not responsible for Gardo's attack, he never would have done such a thing. She didn't tell them people it was me. I don't really know the circumstances of what happened, and uh, even if I did, I wouldn't want to get into it, okay? So, I mean, I like Jackie. I liked her whole family. You got what I'm saying? I loved her grandmother and grandfather and her mother's death because I was raised right beside of them. Gardo's surviving family backs up what Eddie says. And remarkably, the alleged attack on Jackie Gardo was hardly ever mentioned again by the cops or in the newspapers. And Cash Williams didn't find Eddie that day. But as the sheriff was leaving, he spotted something by the door. I had an imitation, a machine gun. It was like a, a little Uzi with plugs in the end of it. It could never be shot. It was more for fear if somebody come up, you know what I'm saying? And I had it sitting right there next to the door. And, and Cash must have thought it was He said, he told me, he said, you better tell him to get that out of here. He said, the ATF's after him already. So they'll, they'll get him for that. The ATF didn't arrest Eddie that day either. In fact, Eddie was having a pretty damn good summer in 1975. That's the thing about summer. The sun's out, the surf's up, and even if an alligator wanders in from time to time, it's easy to believe all is well. Summer could go on forever. But sure as the sun rises and sets, no matter how high you climb in the summer, you know what comes next. Next comes the fall. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder Etc. This is the story of Greenville, South Carolina's summer of 1975. The summer after Frank and Rufus Looper's murder. The summer before police arrested Charles Wakefield Jr. for the killings. If you read the newspapers back then, it was nearly impossible to read the little stories here and there and know just what kind of fall was on its way. Even if you'd grown up around Greenville and lived around its mills and hills your whole life, you might never have seen it coming. One native son certainly didn't. He went by the name Vardry. Back when Fast Eddie was a kid in a West Greenville mill village, back before he was even Fast Eddie, Arthur Edward Williamson Jr. Well, I run wild. I run around all the places. Started running into a kid named Vardry Macby Norris Jr. Listen, me and Vardry Norris was pretty much raised together. Another Mill Hill kid. One of the Poe Mill Norrises, named for his father, Vardry Macby Norris, known to his friends as VM. His daddy named him for Vardry Macby. No relation at all. He just happens to be the best-known founding father of Greenville, South Carolina. Where today you can drive on Vardry Street and Macby Avenue, or turn onto Main Street and visit the Vardry Macby bronze statue. 
There is no statue for Vardre Norris Jr., but that hasn't stopped him from becoming a Greenville legend. The man can run faster than anybody I've ever seen in my life. I'm, I'm telling you, he, he, he could outrun anything I've ever seen. They would get in a car, and he would stand there, and they'd have so far they'd run, he would outrun them in the car. He was absolutely fast. Though Vardre Norris Jr. could run fast, he preferred to stand his ground and fight. I mean, he, he was short. He was, a, he was a tough kid. Vardre Jr. could scrap with the best of them. You had to if you grew up around the mills. But Vardry wasn't what some southern old-timers call a tush hog. Tush hog. Tush hog is a person who thinks you really mean. He's a bully, wants to run around and jump on everybody. Vardry had something else going for him. He was a smart, smart young man. All the boys in Pope Mill, they didn't turn out just to be tush hogs, were smart and tough. Vardry was smart and tough. And so through the years, Fast Eddie and Vardry Jr. ran in the same circles, even if those circles weren't quite what Vardry's mother, Grace, had in mind for her young son. We always remained friends. We've seen each other in the nightclub. We gambled together. And Vardy was a real good little card cheater. Extremely good card cheater. Vardy Norris Jr., though a short man, ahead above his world of tush hogs. Good at the card table. Smart. Tough. Fast. And incredibly good looking. I think that probably was the first time I'd ever seen him. It's time you meet a woman named Olivia. Well, I tell people I didn't know my name was Olivia until I started school. Today, she is Olivia Whitman, the fifth of six kids in her family. Three daughters and a son, and I was supposed to be another son, and I was going to be a junior, because the other son wasn't named after my dad, so I was going to be a junior named after my dad. Instead, her dad got a fourth daughter and decided to stick with his plan anyway. And so Daddy says, well, if it was a boy, it was going to be a junior. It's a girl, it's going to be a junior. So I have my mother's name. Olivia might be her given name, but before she was old enough to understand what people were saying, folks were calling her something else. My mother would rock me and croon to me, little Bitsy baby, and I became Bitsy. And I was Bitsy until my teenage years. That's when Bitsy's high school friends shortened her nickname by a syllable, and Olivia became Bit. When Bit and her friends graduated high school, they took a trip. I'd never been to the beach before. My family had never never taken us. One of the girls invited me to go along and I jumped at the opportunity. We were supposed to go Saturday to Saturday, but Friday they decided they wanted to come back to Greenville early so they could go to the Lamplighter Club. And I'd never been to a club. I was only 17. And right there in the lights of the Lamplighter, Bit saw her future. I think the first thing that I noticed about him was that he enjoyed dancing. The young, fast, smart, Vardry McBee Norris Jr., the man who shared a name with the father of Greenville, doing the shag, South Carolina's state dance. He could shag, and he looked really good doing it. And he told me once he taught himself by holding on to the doorknob and dancing by himself. But he was very good, and people would watch him dance, and I watched him dance. That's what attracted me to him. If you'd been standing there in the lamplighter that night, it would have been hard to imagine a more mismatched pair. He and I came from totally different family backgrounds. He grew up on Poe Mill. Most of the family had gotten into trouble skirmishes one time or another. My family was very stable. There were six of us kids. Dad worked, mother stayed at home. 
But when in history has that kind of thing stood in the way of love? He was nice to look at, and he was fun to watch. He was a funny guy. He was nice, and he knew how to flatter and compliment me. And so uh, I was I was stricken. Seemed like hardly any time at all before Vardry and Bit were married, starting a family. He was 19. She was 18. Before long, they had a little girl, one Vardry doted on. He called her Midget, insisting she must be a grown adult in her little body. He just thought his children were his greatest accomplishment. He was the perfect father, but he sometimes left Bit in the dark. I was wearing contact lenses, and I blinked wrong, and one of my lenses popped out. Bit has a picture of Vardry she keeps, and she'll tell you his hair is all wrong in it. He'd just combed it that way to hide a scar. One night they'd been out at the lamplighter and failed to enjoy the irony of just how dark it was inside when looking for a contact lens. Vardry says, I've got a, got a flashlight in the car. Bit looked in vain for the lens while Vardry went outside to get the flashlight. Bit never found the lens. And Vardry... Well, he's gone, and he's gone, and he's gone, and he doesn't come in. And I'm thinking, well, where, where is he? She found Vardry outside, in the back of a deputy's car. Sheriff's deputy, and I never will forget, his name was Maurice Williams. He said, we're taking your boyfriend in. You might have to go to the hospital and check on him. I don't know how bad he's hurt. Bit says a deputy had cracked Vardry over the head with a nightstick. I never did get really a true story about what had caused him to hit Vardry, but he did. I mean, it was obvious. He just had blood running down his face sitting in the back of the car. But I still, to this day, don't know what he had done. Vardry knew about scars. That one on his head wasn't the biggest. When he was 16, he, he had been shot. Barely missed his heart. It was like right here. You could still see where the bullet was. They had cut him from his, like from his sternum down past his belly button to try to get to the bullet. The doctors couldn't reach the bullet. They left it in there like a monument to the kid's toughness. And Bit, she was used to Vardry's scars by that point. There was sort of a road map on his body that led to that point in his life. That point when Bit got pregnant again. Back then, you didn't have ultrasounds and know what you were going to have beforehand and gender reveal and all that. You just waited and see what came out. The doctor would put you totally to sleep, and you'd wake up to find out what did you have. Bit was literally in the dark, fast asleep in the hospital, with no idea what would be right in front of her face when she woke up. It was Vardry. I woke up from the anesthesia and he was holding my hand about six inches from my face, just willing me to wake up. And when I finally opened my eyes, he said, it's a boy, Bit. We got us a boy. We got us a son. And he was, he was just ecstatic. Another son of Greenville. Looking back at old pictures of the family, it would have been very hard to see that anything was wrong at the Norris house. Vardry, Bit, and the kids look every bit the picture of the perfect Southern American family. But just like with Facebook and Instagram today, and the curated reality anyone can show the world, the 1970s has its own scrapbook reality, with the smiles, silliness, and season's greetings. We don't usually keep a photo album of the bad times. The 
especially while he was working third shift. He was he was real moody. Got to the point that he would um, get get abusive. Vardry never touched the kids, and Bit tried to work through it and find a way to rationalize away the pain. He treated me as he had grown up seeing men treat women. And so he just didn't know any better. <laughs> so I tried to teach him better. Bit divorced Vardry. She left with a five-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son. Marjorie McBee Norris III. The next year was terrifying in a way that Bit doesn't discuss publicly. But in the middle of that terror, Bit heard the voice of that young, good-looking, loving father. He just wanted his family back. I can't tell you the number of times. I just want my family back. I just want my family back. I promise I'll never lay another hand on you. Bit was smart enough to know how much stock to put in the promises of a man who would beat her. But she allowed herself to believe him nonetheless. That is when two of the most unlikely things happened. Bit took Vardry back, and Vardry kept his promise. We remarried in October of 1972, and he never was abusive toward me, and he was never abusive toward his children. They remarried. Vardry and his friend Wendell opened up a construction company, and the money started flowing in. He was taking care of the family. We had a decent social life with his business partner. There was no reason for me to try to pry into, into the business because it was everything was going fine. Sure, sometimes Vardry would be out all night, or sometimes even gone for a few days. But remember what Fast Eddie said about Vardry's artistry at the card table. He was a gambler. He loved to gamble. People would back him to gamble because he was good at it. And he knew all the big gamblers and where the poker houses were, and that's what he was doing. That was his explanation for coming in at all hours of the night, for sometimes being gone a day or two at a time. It was always, well, I was gambling, I was at poker house, I got involved in this game, I was doing so well, I couldn't. I couldn't leave, they wouldn't let me leave. Anyone who's ever gambled for more than a little money, and in places that are more than a little underground, knows that that can happen during card games. They can go on forever, and going home at the wrong time is a mistake. So Bet settled into their home just off Whitehorse Road and looked forward to a prosperous, happy life, which is just what she led with her daughter and two Greenville boys until the summer of 1975. Vera Looper, called Rufus and Frank Looper her boys. That's what she cried out at their funeral. My boys. By summer, a few months had passed since Greenville buried those two men. The city had collected thousands of dollars in reward money to find the killer, and then sat in the dark as the case grew cold. President Gerald Ford sent Vera Looper a letter expressing his sympathy. 
likely little comfort as Vera struggled to find a foothold on her terrible new life and struggled to find her husband's property. One day, she called down to the police department, asking for her dead husband's keys, and the officer at the desk asked if her husband was in jail. Offended, Vera told the officer who she was, and he responded, So? Vera marched right down to the police department, where the officer made his apologies, but the damage was done. Vera Looper had no idea who killed her husband and son, and it seemed neither did anyone in law enforcement. They didn't know any better than Bit did what Summer was about to bring. To understand how the summer of 1975 was different, you have to know what was happening behind the scenes. A couple of weeks before the Loopers died, another son of Greenville, who would begin making the name Wilkins, just as famous as Macby, began working as the chief prosecutor for Greenville and neighboring Pickens counties. The Celesta was not interested in doing anything. The, 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 the one-term Celesta I replaced because back then the solicitor's office was really kind of a deal where you get elected and you use it to promote yourself for the next congressional race. Newly elected solicitor Billy Wilkins was a rising legal star in his early 30s. It was a real part-time job. The solicitors didn't work with law enforcement closely. They walked in the courtroom and handed a file, just winging it. There was no investigation and no concentration. Wilkins was a go-getter who, by chance or design, would one day find himself on the bench as one of the most important federal judges in the nation. But in those first months of 1975, he found himself in the middle of a damned mess. A mess of corrupt cops in a county besieged by organized criminals. Everybody knew, at least I learned when I got there, they knew before that who the bad guys were. We knew who the Dawson gang, we knew who Eddie Weaves, we knew who Jackie Dell was. Just couldn't catch him, or didn't catch him. Billy Wilkins said, even if the cops made a case and the grand jury offered an indictment, Sometimes, nothing happened after that. We didn't have computers back then, and I'd pull a drawer open, and there'd be a bunch of indictments laying in there. No semblance of order to them, just old indictments that the solicitor decided for one reason or another. He wasn't interested in pursuing these things. If you need proof of that, you only need to ask one guy, a guy who's sometimes hard to reach. This call is from a federal prison. Fast Eddie Williamson endured his fair share of indictments over the years. They flew in a sleepy's trailer. One day, Eddie was hanging out at his buddy Sleepy's trailer with Luke Cannon, Sleepy, and Greenville's scariest man, a gambler known as Scar Taylor. Eddie is still convinced Luke Cannon told the cops where to find him. He's the one that kicked it because Scar Taylor was there. He was scared to death of Scar. He was trying to get Scar arrested. Eddie was holding. I had a pocket full of pills. The cops thought the painkiller was dilaudid. What I had was scopolamine hydrochloride. And just what the hell is that? Well, I'm fixing to tell you. Old form of truth serum. You can look it up in the dictionary. Eddie said he learned about it in Chicago from another gambler, Cotton McGuire. We called it jar. You could put it in a drink. It's completely tasteless. In higher doses, jar could knock a man flat on his ass or even kill him. In smaller doses, put one or two on them and gamble with them like pool players. You're shooting pool and he freaking shoots a nine ball in. You said, make that ball hit right here on this rail. Bam, he hit it, shoot right straight in that rail. It's used for something, like, like I said, true serum. Suggestibility. They ask you a question, suggest you answer it. You got what I'm saying? Sleepy got charged. One ounce of methamphetamine. The last ounce that came out of Table Rock. Luke got charged for having a gun. In addition to the drugs, Eddie also had a gun on him. Could have been a really bad day. But it was as if someone did a Jedi mind trick on the prosecutor that served before Billy Wilkins and said, 
don't bother with these charges. He shoots a nine ball in. Or slipped the prosecutor a couple of jar tabs. He said, make that ball hit right here on this rail. And said, make these charges find a drawer somewhere. Bam, he hit a shooter right straight in that rail. So months later, nothing had become of those charges. And it was almost summertime. One-time sheriff's candidate Leonard Brown believed the sitting sheriff wanted him dead. My capture called me and said, look, the sheriff has tried to get me and Tony to come blow your ass away. Someone had just killed the county's top narcotics deputy. Stood just inside the door, shot close to the head. A retired corrupt lieutenant was calling the shots in the organized crime war. I'll run you out of your own goddamn house if I took a fucking notion because I know I can do it. It was a buyer's market for hitmen. Country pulls out a sawed-off shotgun and just jams it in Hash's ribs and cause there's blood everywhere. People across the southeastern United States were lit up on Greenville's Table Rock speed. He would eat speed. He would eat about a spoonful. And they were sitting there and they were running their mouth. Well, I'm glad that Frank Looper got killed. And no bank could feel safe with the so-called Dawson gang on the loose. They knew we would not give up coming out of a bank. It was almost impossible to believe the scarred city of Greenville, South Carolina could handle any more or that it could stop the chaos and almost no one had any idea what was going to happen under the South Carolina summer sun. That's coming up right after this break. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Murder Etc. listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com etc and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com etc to get started today. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. If you like murder, etc., and need something to listen to between episodes, you should check out the audiobook Mississippi Mud, Southern Justice and the Dixie Mafia, by Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Edward Humes. If you've already read that one, check out Audible's unmatched catalog for something else you'll enjoy. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com etc. Again, that's audibletrial.com etc for your free audiobook. If you'd started reading the newspapers on April 30th, 1975, you would have seen a lot of little stories that proved later to be very important. On that day, a bank robbery in Joanna, South Carolina. No suspects. The culprits? Fast Eddie, Billy Ray Dawson, and Wendell Wayne Sellers. There was a break-in at a wheel shop. The culprits? Jackie Delk and Frank Walker. And then Ballard George coming to the rescue with Walker's bail money. There was a barely known guide going to prison for carrying a gun into the city jail. The culprit? Charles Wakefield Jr. There was a small-time hood catching a 10-year sentence and getting sent off to prison. The culprit? Jackie Delk again. In fact, in that 30-day period, the only eye-catching news was the murder of Greenville's famous big band artist, Charlie Russo. To your average folks in Greenville, there was hardly any indication something big was happening behind the scenes. Something Billy Wilkins the county's newest prosecutor said, was unprecedented. I was told by a reporter from the LA Times one time that this was the first time this ever happened that he could tell. I got an agreement from city police, Greenwood County Sheriff's Office, 
member of SLED, Pickens County Sheriff's Office, and ATF each provide two members for a task force. And we were going to investigate people, not crimes. People, not crimes. That's another way of saying how people organized to commit crimes. We met in secrecy in the federal building in a vacant alternate jurors room. We'd meet every Thursday or late in the evening if we had court and so forth. Greenville County's internal affairs investigator had been shouting about organized crime in Greenville, but the sheriff's office and county council had run him out of town. We met there because the two representatives of the sheriff's office were afraid that if the word got out they wanted this task force, their lives and their family's lives would be in jeopardy. But Wilkins, at least in private, realized the county had a problem with corruption, organized crime, drugs, and murder. And he knew almost everywhere the task force went, it would have eyes on it. So we couldn't meet in my office because there's so much coming and going, and all of a sudden they see us in the conference room. What's going on? We couldn't meet in the sheriff's office, of course. Uh, same with the city police because it's too much moving back and forth by other people that would see what we were doing, so we were to go to the federal building. And there, behind the closed doors, away from prying eyes. They started doing the type of thing you might see in the movies. They started figuring out the hierarchy of Greenville's organized crime network. We got a chart and we sat around the first time and said, let's name in descending order of culpability. There's number one will be the most culpable. Let's find out who, who we're looking at. Up and down that list, names you have come to know well. So we started out with people like Fast Eddie Williamson and, and Dawson gang members. And of course, Bub Skelton was on the list. Uh, Jackie Delk was on the list. The chart wasn't just an educational exercise. Wilkins and his organized crime task force had a plan. The idea was we start with number 20 and see if we could flip him on 19, 19 on 18. Of course, it didn't work that way because sometimes 20 flipped on 17 because we just didn't have it exactly right. Wilkins' plan was audacious, almost inconceivable in Greenville's history. After all, you remember what Wilkins said about the reason Raymond Bugs Hassey ended up dead on Paris Mountain? Frank Walker, country small, they were worried that he was going to turn state's evidence against them. Snitches didn't get stitches. They got executed and dumped on Paris Mountain. The task force might have seemed ridiculous to people accustomed to the status quo because it counted on a band of experienced criminals turning away from a lifestyle of easy money and turning on each other. The month of June began with what seemed to be at the time an insignificant arrest. A 22-year-old heroin addict named Mike Coward got busted and charged with 17 break-ins. Apart from a short news clip, no one paid it much attention. There was bigger news. The movie Jaws was opening in theaters Ivan Nachman announced he had locked up a bunch of taped secret recordings in a safety deposit box, recordings that implicated corrupt deputies. And a drunk man named Richard Hall walked into the Friendship Lounge, shot up the place, and killed two people. No one paid any attention to the Mike Coward arrest. And even the newspapers didn't mention something else I found. Deep in Raymond Country Small's prison file, from the summer of 1975. Now, listen, there's something here I want to address, and it's about country. Okay. I had written Eddie because these documents I found made no sense to me. And it turns out, they didn't make sense to Eddie either. I sat down and thought a lot about this. For as long as I've known the story of Country Small, I've heard that once he and Frank Walker killed Bugs Hassey, Country hightailed it out of South Carolina and ended up in Florida, where he stayed until he headed back to South Carolina and got caught in December of 1975. But the documents in Country's prison file indicate something else. 
They say country was in Greenville, in prison, beginning on June 16, 1975, and then escaped from the Oaklawn Correctional Facility on July 8th. I asked Eddie, one of country's close friends, to tell me what he remembers about where country was and when. Eddie started with how country ended up in Greenville to begin with. Country got out. He went back to Charleston. He got in touch with me. Country was broke. He didn't have a whole lot of money. He got down. His mother bought him a Plymouth Roadrunner. He called me and he wanted to come up, asked me if I had any work for him. I said, yeah, I, I, probably, I, can give you, I can give you something to do. He came up the day that Frank Looper got killed. I met him at the heart of Greenville at that time. And I had passed by Frank Looper's house and that red and white El Dorado that same day. All right? I seen the police cars there. So got up there. I just pulled in and stayed because I didn't know what was going on. And uh, we watched the news, and that's where we found out, found out what was happening. But that's when Country came to Greenville. Once in Greenville, Eddie says Country started to settle in. Me and him did a few things together, which I'm not going to go into, okay? Because they're still unsolved. <laughs> And it was no murders, though. Believe that. All right. But see, South Carolina don't have a statute of limitation. I'd got him a place out like you're going to Traveler's Rest. Road goes all the way out through that Pontet Highway. I got him a trailer out there off of him and his two girlfriends. And that's where he was staying. When he left, it was after the thing with Bugs. The thing with Bugs was that contract murder. When Country Small and Frank Walker killed Bugs Hassey less than a month after Country got to town. The prison records I have back all of this up. They indicate Country made parole on December 30th, 1974, two and a half years into an eight-year sentence. But those same records say Country Small had his parole revoked on May 28th, 1975, and he was back in the correction system on June 6th of that year. Then those same records say Country escaped from Oaklawn on July 8th and went on the lam again, a freedom he enjoyed until he got picked up with Ballard George the following December. Fast Eddie? steadfastly refuses to believe it's possible Country was anywhere near Greenville in the summer of 1975, or that Country was in Greenville's Oaklawn facility. He was not at Oaklawn. The conviction would have to be from Greenville if he was at Oaklawn. I just, I, I, I just, I believe the records are wrong. No matter where Country was, over the next 30 days, it was hard to know which way to turn. Dawson gang members Jerry Hufflin and Tip Gibson robbed the Bankers Trust in Pendleton, South Carolina. Members of Congress held gun control hearings in Atlanta. A guy named Howard Porterfield ended up dead in what police called a contract murder over South Carolina drug turf. Jimmy Hoffa went missing. On August 1st, the same day Greenville County's Northwood Little League won the South Carolina state title, Eddie Williamson, Bill Gibson, and Theo McDaniel robbed Southern Bank and Trust in Irmo, South Carolina, for more than $55,000. That same week, President Ford restored citizenship for Confederate General Robert E. Lee, and a one-time Greenville police officer named James Belcher died in a fire in his cell at Kirkland Correctional Institution. In the middle of all of that, Prosecutor Billy Wilkins and his task force started to execute the second step of their plan. Remember what he said about the drawers in his office. I'd pull a drawer open, there'd be a bunch of indictments laying in there. No semblance of order to them, just old indictments that this was decided for one reason or another. He wasn't interested in pursuing these things. One day while poking around in the mess, Wilkins happened to cross an indictment 
that matched the chart of people the task force was putting together. One of them was a dope case where Jackie Delk did sell some dope to uh, undercover agent. It was like two or three years old, two years old, but it was all we had. Jackie Delk. So I called the case for trial and we went to trial. The same guy who left his driver's license at a drugstore burglary back in January. Saul Abrams was his attorney. The same guy who couldn't manage to stop getting arrested for the rest of his life. A very capable, flamboyant attorney back then. Jackie was, once again, locked up. Jackie got convicted. I gave him an opportunity. If he wanted to sit down with me and talk, we'll talk. Billy had Jackie Delk where he wanted him. Almost. See, once Jackie got sentenced, the Department of Corrections shipped him off to CCI, the toughest prison in the state, nearly two hours away from Greenville. One day, while digging through Jackie's prison records, I found an old memo signed by an assistant solicitor named William Lucius. The memo said Billy Wilkins wanted Jackie Delk transferred to the upstate. Reluctantly, the Corrections Department sent Delk back. And at some point in the middle of all of this, Wilkins and Delk started to get chummy. I don't know whether I ought to say this or not, but I, I would meet with Jackie, and Jackie's in jail now. We meet with him on Saturday morning. It was hard for me to get somebody on a Saturday morning to go get him, you know, bring him up to my office. And I didn't want to sit down in the jail asking you know, one it's not a convenient place to sit in these little cubby holes. And so they sat in Wilkins' office. It makes it for a more friendly atmosphere where we can sit around a table and have a cup of coffee together. Or went for a ride. So I'd even go down to the jail and check him out myself. We'd drive up right up the street to my office in my personal vehicle. Ultimately, the task force plan would begin to work, but not before something else happened. In that memo requesting Delk's transfer, the assistant solicitor wrote, Mr. Wilkins informs that Delk has had an opportunity and will not run. So what did Delk do after getting his transfer? Take one guess. Yeah, he ran. On August 11th, the Corrections Department released Delk to the custody of a minimum security prison in the upstate. Two weeks later, Bruce Springsteen released Born to Run. Eight days after that, Jackie Delk ran, and then jumped in a car driven by none other than Frank Walker. Delk stayed on the run for all of two hours, before Frank Looper's old narcs, Miles Cheatham, Al Ashmore, and Ken Pettis, found Delk hiding in a closet. Delk got charged for escaping, Walker got charged for aiding, abetting, and harboring a fugitive. Wilkins never prosecuted those cases, perhaps in part because Jackie Delk, the driver's license dropping, speed eating, mouth running, walking embodiment of a fly in the ointment, started running his mouth in a much different way. That's how I began to learn firsthand about the Dawson game. Jackie, who knew he had so much power that he could cause so much chaos? Because Jackie Delk might have been a screw-up, but he knew a hell of a lot of people, like the people who pulled the Table Rock Labs heist. He was involved with them, but not part of them. He sold dope for them. And the man pulling the strings behind the scenes, Luke Cannon. He didn't sell the dope, but he was the guy that kept the cash, kept the dope, 
and made sure that it was dribbled out so that nobody was flashing a lot of money at one time and the drugs stayed around to keep a constant flow of cash coming into the organization. And he knew how drugs moved all over town. And Jackie was part of that, selling that stuff. And that's how he got, got to know about what was going on. Jackie knew Frank Walker. He knew Ballard George and Crooked Cops. And Jackie knew someone else, someone much higher on the task force list of wanted men. But he did tell me one thing, and this is when we jumped from like, like 19 all the way up to the top. Jackie knew Fast Eddie Williamson. While Jackie's mouth was running, some things started happening in the city of Greenville that would change countless lives. That small-time heroin addict, Mike Cowart, pleaded guilty to all of those break-ins. And despite the fact he thought he was going to get a lenient sentence, got hammered with 24 years in prison. At almost exactly the same time, police told reporters they were questioning a suspect in the Looper murders. They were two seemingly unrelated news stories. And before anyone knew otherwise, Charles Wakefield Jr. would be just days away from death row. But Greenville didn't know that in September of 1975. Those were little news stories. There was a much bigger one to grab readers' attention. The newspaper headline was very optimistic. It read, Dawson Gang Broken Up. At that point, the headline couldn't have been farther from the truth. But FBI agents arrested five men after a bank robbery in McEwen, Tennessee. Among them, Billy Ray Dawson and Greenville's Wendell Wayne Sellers. Sellers wasn't kin to the infamous Willie Foster Sellers, but he was part of the same crew. The bust wasn't the whole gang, but it was a start. See, Wendell Wayne Sellers called Greenville home, and he had most people convinced he was a legitimate businessman, the one-time owner of SNN Construction. The S stood for Sellers. The N stood for Norris, Bargery McBee Norris Jr. It was just like, you know, he'd go to work, and I'd go to work, and we'd come home, have family life. Back before cops started leaking information to the newspapers about SNN construction having links to organized crime, back before SNN's bookkeeper was found dead of a suspected but never proven overdose, back before investigators found Bugs Hassey's body and his personal telephone book with phone numbers for SNN employees inside, SNN looked in every way legitimate, and Vargery's wife, Bit, thought they were living their best life alongside Wendell Sellers and his wife. We would actually socialize with Wendell and his wife. I just, I didn't suspect him of being involved in anything either. And, you know, it was kind of fun having a, a couple that we could go out with and have fun with. And Vardry was being kind. He was providing. Bet thought, what could possibly be wrong? He was taking care of the family. We had a decent social life with his business partner. There was no reason for me to try to pry into, into the business because it was, everything was going fine. But then came the summer of 1975 and that big headline out of McEwen, Tennessee. We were, had a great life together. And then Wendell gets arrested for bank robbery just out of the blue. I, I can't even tell you what a sh shock that was because I thought the only thing that they were ever doing wrong was illegal gambling. Bit might never have pried into her husband's business affairs, but she wasn't stupid. And then I'm hearing about other people that I've heard of who are being arrested for bank robbery. 
and I'm thinking, whoa, if all these people, especially Wendell, are involved in bank robbery, and he and Virgil practically lived together, I mean, if they weren't working together, air quotes, we were spending time with them as a family. In her heart, she knew. But she wanted Barjorie to say it. I try to get him to tell me, how are you involved in this? You have to be involved in this, don't you? Don't you have to be involved in this if everybody you know is? And he, he denied everything. He denied it. And he kept saying, I never robbed a bank. I never, I've never been in bank robbery. And denied knowing anything about any of this stuff, you know. Bit wanted to believe him. And so she did, as much as she could. But even when the people of Greenville and even the gangsters themselves didn't see it coming. So worried about what Varjorie was into and when the hammer was going to come down on him, that I moved out. Bit's father died that year. Her mother wasn't well. And Bit could hear the footsteps behind Varjorie. So she left him again. And the reason was twofold. To help my mother try to cope and um, to remove my children from having to watch their dad be arrested somewhere. When I asked Bit to tell me about her time with Marjorie, even she couldn't figure out how he fit into the story we've been telling. Marjorie's role in the organized crime ring was very small. From the time I left in January till he was arrested in May, I didn't have a lot to do with him because I knew he was lying to me. And I, I just didn't, didn't want to be a part of that. But in a way, that insignificance makes his fall that much more important in understanding the human toll of that crime network's years of success and understanding just how far the dominoes would tumble after Jackie Delk started talking. One day, the front page of the paper featured Bub Skelton being led by FBI agents, finally busted after years of corruption. And in that same news story, Bit had to read about her husband. Breaking and entering, grand larceny, safe cracking, possession of stolen goods. I don't know what else. But no bank robbery. That's actually right. And because Varjorie didn't get busted for any bank robberies, he didn't have to do federal time. He ended up in that same relaxed, open-door prison Jackie Delk had escaped from. Then it was like he had his own personal little private apartment while he was serving time. And he wanted to see his kids. Bit stayed away at first, but her kids wanted to see their dad too. They loved their dad. I had no idea that he was a bad person. Bit had grown close with Marjorie's mother, Grace. The other kids said she, she spoiled him and she loved him more. And she said, it's not that I loved him any more than the others, it's that he needed me more. So Grace started taking the kids up to visit and bit. So it was just, just kind of natural that I started spending more time with him then too. Before long, they had established a very non-traditional family routine. Marjorie spent his nights in his prison room. But during the day... Our son had started playing Little League football. And he was able to come watch a game and able to um, just see him play. And that just thrilled him, both of them, the son and the daddy. Marjorie visited a bit in the hospital when she had her tonsils out. They went Christmas shopping for the kids. They spent time together in private. And then Bit would take him back to prison each night. One night, 
He looked at her across the front seat and asked a question. Sitting in the car outside the gate, we had been out somewhere and I had was bringing him back to the facility and we we're just talking. And he said, he asked me, he said, do you really love me? And I said, well, if wanting to be with somebody all the time and wanting to share things with this person all the time and thinking about this person a lot of the time, that kind of sort of sounds like love to me. And so, yeah, I guess I do. Bit remembers it being a Friday night, the Friday before the series finale of the miniseries Roots on Sunday, January 30th, 1977. Vardrick called the house to remind his daughter to watch the last episode and then stayed on the phone with Bit as they watched. Bit got up the next morning with that conversation still in her head as she went to work. She'd hardly walked in the door when her boss called her into the office and told her to shut the door. He said, there's a rumor going around that involves Vardry. And I thought, okay, what now? In those few seconds after her boss spoke, Bit ran through all of the possibilities in her head all the potential crimes Vardry could have committed, all the lies he might have told, everything Vardry could have done again to make her sorry she'd taken him back into her life. She didn't think about what she'd heard on the radio news that morning, about a man killed on Paris Mountain and then left dead at the county dump. That couldn't have been Vardry because he was in prison the night before when they'd talked about roots. Vitz boss looked at her. And so then he proceeded to say, well, that body that they found is Vardry, and it's really not a rumor. It's, it was Vardry. Olivia suddenly found herself falling apart. But instead of collapsing, running to her car to get to Vardry's mother before she heard the news, Grace wasn't home when Vid arrived. And by the time Grace returned, the family had gathered. We're all on the front porch, and... I can, I can still see her today getting out of the car and immediately getting upset. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. What's wrong? Tell me what's wrong. It's Vardry, isn't it? It's Vardry. I know it's Vardry. And it was. I loved her so. And to see her hurt that way. That night, after talking about Roots, Vardry had left the prison. Two men started chasing him on Paris Mountain. They shot him in the back, beat him on his head and face, stabbed him in the throat, then put him in the trunk of a car and drove him to the dump. Police officially identified Vardry McNeil Norris's body using the scar he got on his chest when he was shot at the age of 16. When the doctors x-rayed Vardry's body, they determined he'd been shot twice. Easy assumption when you find two bullets. But Vardry had only been shot once that night on Paris Mountain. That other bullet had been stuck in his body since he was 16, just waiting as Vardry followed the path of his scars to the end of the map and fell off into the darkness and into the memories of some of Greenville's longest-serving lawmen. This is Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown. One of my first murder cases was, was Vardry Norris. Finally got Ooch to uh, tell me where the body was. And the only thing I promised him that if he would tell me where the body was and give some closure to the, to the family that I would not oppose his parole. I didn't say I'd recommend it, I just said I wouldn't oppose it. And so he finally came through and told me where the body was on Blackberry Valley Road. Billy Wilkins prosecuted the case and had it off the docket in record time. 
the Vardrey Norris murder case was open and shut in less than three months without anyone ever answering why Vardrey died. Vardrey's widow says the men who killed her husband didn't serve 10 years in prison. One killer, a man named Charles Bowen, alleged Vardrey raped his wife, but no one believed him. And Bit still wonders. Knowing that story wasn't true, I've always suspected that there was more to it, but I've never been able to get any information that satisfies the why. I've spent a few years asking that question, and I don't have the answer yet. At one point, someone whispered in Bit's ear that Eddie Williamson had something to do with it. But at this point, there isn't a mystery in Greenville, South Carolina that somebody hasn't tried to put on Fast Eddie. But this is what Fast Eddie said when asked if he knew why Vardry got killed. Anthony Oots killed him. I have no idea really what it was for. And if I did, I'm not going to get into it. I am sorry that he got killed. There was nothing in the world I would do to that. I couldn't do that to a friend. I mean, I, mean, I really couldn't. You know, I, I always have to go the other way. Bit did everything she could to move on. She remarried and had a great life with a husband that she lost to cancer in 2011. And she had done all she could to put questions about her first husband's death behind her. But one day, she heard a name on this podcast. The name Anthony Oots. The man who not only killed Vardry, but carried his body to the dump and left it there in the dead of the night. How did Oots play into this story? Well, if you think way back to episode 6, the very first time police filed a report about the possibility a hitman had killed Frank and Rufus Looper, the informant said the information came from a man named Anthony Oots, a man who said the hitman was driving a white over red Cadillac the cops could find at the Adams Junkyard. Bitt's husband played a bit part in the 1970s organized crime world in Greenville, South Carolina. And like any other Hollywood bit part, Marjorie McBee Norris, a son of Greenville, named after the father of Greenville, was expendable. But what Hollywood rarely shows you and what no one ever cares to tell when recounting the lives of gangsters gone by is what happens once the bit parts are written out of the script. So imagine sitting with a woman named Olivia on a Friday afternoon, on the day before her birthday, a woman twice widowed, alone in a small suburban home. Imagine her remembering the day she stood over Vardry's open casket, looking down at the young man who had once combed his hair over a scar left by a cop's nightstick. The mortuary had done a pretty good job making him presentable. But his hair was all wrong. <laughs> it, it didn't look right. And so I just reached over a couple of fingers and was just going to move his hair over to the side a little bit more. And when I did, my fingers brushed against his forehead. And I could see then that there was just like gobs and gobs of makeup mortician's makeup to try to cover it up because it was black underneath. But all this happened in just a couple of seconds, but immediately it was like a horde of people rubbernecking. Practically pushed me into the coffin. And so I said, close it. Close it, close it, close it. And they did. That might be the worst memory a woman could ever have to endure. But Bit, she still remembers something else. 
She remembers having to understand what it meant to be the wife of a man who lived in a dark world, a place where a criminal's code of silence could keep a man safe from the police for years and years. A world where one man running his mouth could sing so loud it shook the foundation of an entire community and brought down a syndicate that had operated with near impunity for years. And then Bet remembers having to explain that world to her children. Having to tell my kids their daddy was dead and telling them how it happened. And I'll never forget what my son said. He was six. He said, was it the police or was it his friends? And I said, well, son, it was somebody who was supposed to be his friend. Thanks for listening to episode 21. Before we close out today, I want to send a personal thank you to a listener who heard about a recent freedom of information request and how it was estimated to cost $272.50. And so that listener sent us $272.50. So a huge thanks to Sam Pratt, a journalist and activist who's written for Esquire, the New York Times Magazine, and more. You can learn more about him at sampratt.com. If you'd like to follow Sam's lead, you can always send a donation to us at paypal.me slash murderetc or to our Venmo account, murderetc. You can find that information and links to other special offers for Murder Etc. listeners on the front page of our website, murderetcpodcast.com. Now, here's what's coming up next time on Murder Etc. After the summer came the fall, and that's when two other people started talking to police about Charles Wakefield. The big question was, why did they start talking? White Earp Harper was one of the most destructive forces. He is my worst nightmare on two feet. Your Honor, we'd like to call two new Looper murder witnesses on the next Murder Etc.